Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. Hey guys, welcome to Man Cave in October 2021. Just recently, we had a wonderful one-day men's retreat called Forged, and we had some great fun, food, fellowship, but some fantastic teaching. And today, we want you to have the opportunity to hear uh, Dr. David Lawson, who was our speaker. And for those of you who were there, this is going to be a great refresher, but for those of you who were unable, unable to attend, love for you to listen in and learn what uh, God is teaching us about persevering to be the men that God wants us to be as godly men, as husbands and as fathers. So listen in as you learn how to live on mission to be the man God wants us to be. You've got a Bible open in Nehemiah in your forged field guide. You've got a place dead center to take notes for the first this session, the first two parts. Forged by passion, forged by action. Yeah, Ben. Um, anyway, let me set up the context before I do that. Let me set up the context. Probably a thousand years, roughly, before Christ. God brought the children of Israel out of a time that we call the Judges. It was kind of a weird, crazy time. If you read the book of Judges, you'll be kind of, sometimes you're going, wow, that's really cool. Sometimes you're going, that's pretty gross. Um, book of Judges, that's a synopsis. But then he brought them into the kingdom age. And that went along okay. And then about 700 years ago, I mean before Christ, the northern, the kingdom had split and the northern kingdom wound up in trouble and they went into captivity because they did not listen to God's men, God's prophets. They didn't continue to seek His face. And then about 600 years before Christ, roughly, the southern kingdom, kingdom known as Judah, where we get the word Jew from, that kingdom was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Moved, up, moved most of them up into uh, modern Iraq. So that's the context. They've started coming home. They went out of the country in three stages. They came back in three stages. And Nebuchadnezzar took them. He forged in the life. Let me, let me say it this way. Can you imagine living as a 10-year-old kid in your own home country Nebuchadnezzar grabs you and your buddies up, drags you to what felt like the other side of the world. And he said, by the way, you're going to learn my language. He probably had them castrated. And you're going to work for me. Talk about a fire. The fires of captivity forged Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael. Those forged... Those fires also forged Ezekiel. Those fires forged Daniel and all of those guys. They, they were shaped and burned by it. 
I wanted to show you this. This is a gift from my wife. Now, it's not the best. It would never win a contest on Forged by Fire. Uh, the case is, uh, the case needs to be replaced with a leather one, but I've never done that. This is a kukuri. It's made by hand in uh, Nepal, up in the shadows of the Himalayas. And my wife was there, saw the forge, saw the man. The forge was clay and rock. And he took steel and began to beat it and shape it until he put together this pretty incredible thing. These weapons were famous with the uh, Nepali soldiers. Till today, Britain still has Nepali soldiers in their army. They terrified the Japanese during World War II. They were famous for these weapons. And mine's a little short, it's only about a foot. Most of theirs run about 18 inches. And with them, they could take your head clean off. These things are strong, they're sharp. Um, I don't know for a fact, it's rumored that uh, the guy making this cut it out of an old set of leaf springs that he borrowed from a truck. So if you know what I'm talking about when I say leaf springs, and you're going, dude, <laughs> that's kind of awesome. But you don't take the leaf spring and make it into this, make it into a weapon, make it into a weapon that can be used in the hands of someone that knows what they're doing until you beat it and you heat it and you cool it and you beat it and you heat it and you stick it in the fire. Now, I will tell you that David Lawson being forged is not like this piece of steel. David Lawson being forged whines and cries a lot. It's hot in here. I don't like this. Now you stick me in the cold. Now you stick me in the cold. Wait, what are you going to do with that hammer? No, 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 no. Do not hit me with that hammer. But the process is extremely similar in our lives and in this knife. Now, I'm going to put this back. I will tell you that if you see it laying around and you pick it up to look at it, it's not perfect by any stretch. But do not put your hand on this side of the scabbard where the blade's sharp. Uh, it's common in Nepal for some young guy that doesn't know what he's doing to grab it like this and pull it out. And these bands break and he cuts his fingers. So if you see it laying around, pick it up and look at it, but don't yeah, pull it out like that. Well, you never have your hand on it, all right? Because I don't know if we have anybody that brought material to stitch you with. Anybody have super glue? All right, we can fix you. Don't worry about it. We got super glue. Forged. I have a definition for forged. In the life of that knife, it was almost a single event. It happened over and over, over about five days. In a man's life, it describes a process, not an event. It's out, not hours, but years, years of beating and shaping and molding. And God is using the circumstances in your life. The Bible would say it this way. He's designed everything for good. He is working it. Not that everything is good, but he is working it for your good. He's forging you to make you and shape you into what he wants you to be. I can look back and see his hand at work. I rarely am able to look at the moment and see him at work, and I never 
have an idea of what he's about to do in the future. Before we came in here, we prayed and we were just reminded of things that happened in the lives of men that were here at the last retreat. We don't know what's coming. But we do know that God is holding us in his hand and the fire is being controlled. It's exactly the right temperature. The hammer blows are in exactly the right spot. The cooling process happens in exactly the right time to accomplish his purpose and shape you into the man that your family needs you to be, that Silverdale needs you to be, that your church needs you to be, that our society needs you to be. And I would beg you when we get through, embrace the forging process because our society desperately needs men who are shaped in the image of God. Amen. Nehemiah. Let's hit two or three things real quick. Nehemiah, the forges, Ben was was fond of saying in some notes that God doesn't call the qualified as much as he qualifies the called. Now, this is what he means. It's not that you don't wind up qualified. You go to school, you learn, you, you go through things that shape you and make you what he's called you to be. But it is that when he put his mark on you and called you, you probably were not qualified. He takes whom he chooses and he begins to shape them and mold them into the image of Christ. Um, I'm dyslexic. I am not qualified to be a pastor. Reading is a challenge. Uh, and if you thought reading was a challenge, you should try higher education. Oh, my heaven. They have no idea the stuff that I saw when I was trying to read. Crazy words that no one's ever heard before. Uh, some of you may be charismatic. I kind of read in tongues with my dyslexia. <laughs> and I'm in bad need of an interpreter. Um, but he forges the unqualified. Think about David. It was the lions and the bears at night in the Judean wilderness that qualified David to face Goliath. It was the terror and the fear and the crying out to God that qualified him. In Moses' life, it was 40 years on the backside of the desert shepherding sheep, which qualified a murdering fugitive to be the leader that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, established them as a nation, and parked them on the edge of the promised land so Joshua could take them in. It's the trouble, the, the fire, the problems that we go through that shapes us and molds us and that God uses to qualify us. Are you with me? All right, let's pray and then let's start into Nehemiah. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ to speak powerfully and clearly to accomplish your purpose. Father, the time is limited and we've got a lot to go over. Father, I pray that I would say the words that need to be heard. I pray that you would speak to me and that you would speak to us. That as a body of believers, we would see what the process looks like and begin to embrace the process. Father, may we leave here today embracing the fire and the hammer, knowing that it's in your hands and that you're not here to destroy us. You're here to shape us and mold us. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, Nehemiah's qualification, by the way, I think is the next slide. 
you know what? You're not qualified, Nehemiah, to be a military mastermind, a builder, an architect, an engineer. Uh, that was it. That's what qualified him to be the governor. That's what qualified him to build the walls and to lead the people and to see with the enemy for what they were. He was a cupbearer. Do you know what? A, you know, if you if you try to do a study on what it is that is a cupbearer, you find out that that whole entire study, looking at original text and other languages, takes about fifteen minutes. It's the guy that holds the cup for the king. Um, Hence the name, cup-bearer. The other part of that is to be a cup-bearer, you have to be qualified to drink poison and die, which kind of covers all of us. That's what Nehemiah was qualified to do. He would hold the cup, he would pour the wine, he would taste it often to make sure that it was good, and if it's not good, what happens? I think that tastes bad, and then he falls over. It does mean that he's loyal. It means that he's committed. It means that he's a man that the king trusts. Or he wouldn't be in that position. He was cupbearer to the king. Now, four things in Nehemiah's life that we're going to pick up two of them and walk with them right now. Four ideas, processes that forged Nehemiah and that I think apply to our lives too. First one, he was forged by passion. Now, that word passion literally means out of Latin, Suffering. He was forged by passion. Now, I know that we think passion and, and sexual love. I'm passionate about my relationship with my wife. Originally in Latin, this word was popular among Christians because they talked about the passion of the Christ. They talked about the passion of the martyrs. They talked about the people that died and suffered for their faith in God and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even later, you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Because that's what it's about. Passion was originally about suffering. What are you willing to suffer for, you might ask? What are you passionate about? Well, I will tell you that most men, if you want to find out what they're passionate about, just look at their time and their money. Because that's what we, that's where we spend it. We spend it on what we're passionate about. It doesn't take long to figure out that you're passionate about sports. It doesn't take long to figure out that some of you are passionate about Tennessee. God bless you. Uh, I'm kidding. (laughs) It wouldn't take you long to figure out I'm still confused about Oklahoma and Texas being in the Southeast Conference. I don't know. You have to tell me what that means or if it means, I don't know. Because I've... I'm an OU fan, and we were never southeast. But anyway, that's another story. Passion comes from the word to suffer. And in a sense, it means what am I excited about? What am I driven by? And you could twist it a little bit. What am I willing to suffer for? I suffer for OU football. I will stay up late. I will yell boomer sooner. I will get glared at by people around me. And I will ignore you and go online where my family on Facebook is also yelling, Boomer Sooner. And I will smile because you just don't know. I will suffer. You get the idea? We do that. I've played golf in 105 degree weather in Texas. I quit golf. 
I'm not willing to suffer in 105 degree weather to play golf. Bless you if you are, but you need to get a different hobby. What are you willing to suffer for? Nehemiah was changed, moved, shaped by his passion. Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to read the first couple of verses. I think, oh, I think you have verse 4 on the screen. Nehemiah, by the way, if you haven't found it, Nehemiah is close to the middle of your Bible. Go to the middle and then just turn back over to the left. It's also in the table of contents. And thank you, brother, it's on your phone. Easier to find on your phone. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakila, maybe, that's the way. Now it happened in the month of Chev, Kislev, in the twelfth year, I was in Susa, the capital, that Han and I, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. Some of the Jews had escaped and gone home. Some of the Jews had been sent back. They survived the captivity, and they were back home in Jerusalem. And in essence, he's saying, hey, how are the folks doing? And this is the answer. And they said to me, verse 3, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And then in verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And for some days, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. How are the folks at home? They said, the walls are still torn down, Nehemiah. The temple has been rebuilt. It had been up for 70 years. But the walls, Nehemiah, it's embarrassing. The people have no protection from their enemies. The gates are totally destroyed. Even the structure of the city is falling apart because the eastern wall was actually a set of terraces supported by the wall below it. And without the walls, even the whole city is falling apart. And he sat down and he cried and he wept. Now, let me, let me comment about this. We see right here a passion in Nehemiah that I don't know that anyone else had seen before that. Now, it's hard to judge the brother's motive. Why did he weep? I don't know. I know that the walls had been stopped by his boss, the guy that he holds the cup for in Ezra chapter 4 had ordered them to not build the walls. Do not rebuild the walls of this city. I've read about these people. They are strong and rebellious. And if they build the walls, they will turn against the kingdom. So he said, stop. But all of a sudden, in a moment, he heard news that broke his heart. Why? I would suggest it broke his heart because in that moment, God reached out of heaven and into Nehemiah and he said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And it gripped his heart and it broke his heart. Now, he was forged by this passion. By that I mean this passion that we're beginning to see the glimpse of here is what shapes him and moves him and calls him to action, as we'll see in a moment. This passion drove him to be the man that we know of as Nehemiah. Now, I asked you a moment ago, what are you passionate about? 
Let me ask it differently. Are you passionate about the right things? In my mind, this is one of the reasons that Bible study, that prayer, and that community like here today is so absolutely vital for us and for our families and for our church and for our nation. Because it's here that my passions get challenged. It's here that my passions get channeled into action. It's here talking to you that I find out I'm not loving the right thing. I was sitting in a, in a, in a church sitting where I could have been quite comfortable and we were singing songs in English that I knew and we were lit and with music that I appreciated and the pastor was wonderful in preaching the gospel in a way that I liked it. Emphasis on everything about it I liked. And a man reached out and he said, David, we're to take the gospel to the whole world. Go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations, the whole world. And I went, yes, amen. Look out, Chattanooga, Tennessee. David, there are more than 2,000 unreached people groups in India alone. More than 2,000. No one's ever engaged with the gospel just in the subcontinent of India. 40% of the people groups in the world, no one's ever engaged them with the gospel. They don't know that there's a God that forgives sins. 90% of the missionaries go to places that have already been reached. I sat in that church and found out I had the wrong passion. And God gripped my heart. I'm suggesting to you that the right passion is a God thing. It comes from being around men of God. It comes from seeking the face of God, prayer. And it comes from, one more thing, putting myself in their place. Empathy. Empathy, prayer, men of God. Those things shape my passion. Now, if I don't like that, I will get around a different group and be passionate about other things. But in this room, when iron sharpens iron, steel sharpens steel, in this room with men that have forges and hammers, we should be shaping each other's passion for the right reasons and the right things. Empathy. What do I mean by that? It means I put myself in their position. I went to a place where God was not worshipped. I watched them, poor people with almost no food, certainly not enough to actually live on, give their food to idols and worship at painted trees. And God gripped my heart. And he moved me from what I was doing to doing something else in a place where I'm not comfortable. Why? Because I was with a group, a community of Christ, because I was praying, and because the community of Christ said, David, let's adjust your passion. The world doesn't center on OU. Well, 
Perhaps it should. It doesn't. It is not. It is about seeking the face of God and hearing his voice. Is your passion right? I don't know. I don't know. Today we're going to check, though, because in every single session you're going to hear about the passion of these men and the way that they have been forged and shaped. Nehemiah, I sat down and wept for days, but his passion moved him to action. And that's the second thing I want to talk about. Passion drives action. Passion drives action. What I'm passionate about will move me to do what I need to do. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. He started with chapter 1, weeping and praying and crying. He was passionate about the people of Israel. He was, he was passionate about them being restored as God's people. But then chapter 2, or verse 11, let me close up his prayer and watch what he does. Oh Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and may the prayer and your prayer blah, let me start over. Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name, and make your servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah said, Right now today, give me favor, give me success with this king. Do you know how long he prayed? He prayed for four months. For four months, he let that passion eat him. For four months, he sought the face of God. For four months, he prayed and sought. He didn't give up. Are you guys passionate about your marriage? I'll put you on the spot. Raise your hand. You're passionate about your marriage. If you're married, obviously. You're passionate. Some of you newly married. I hope you're passionate about your new marriage. You're passionate about your marriage. So you have a rough spot and things don't go well for a couple of weeks. What do you do? That's a really good idea. You know what my dad did? He got passionate about another marriage. Seven times. He was a really friendly guy. There were lots of ladies... (laughs) He got saved in the last one. He's in heaven now. I was missing him last night when I was thinking about today. You pray and you get after it. You stick with it because it's not about one month or two months. It's not about an event. It's a lifelong process of moving forward in that relationship. You stay after it. You stay after it. He stayed after you kept praying. And he went to the king and he served the king. And look what the king said to him. Verse, uh, I think I've got it on the screen. And the king, uh, verse 3, no, 2. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. The king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Let me pause right there. 
Some people will read this and think Nehemiah was so overwhelmed from four months of praying that he came into the presence of the king and he forgot who he was standing before and he let his emotions show. Don't show up sad in front of the king. That gives him all the wrong ideas. Are you sad because of my imminent demise? I mean, is this something I do not need to drink in this cup, Nehemiah? Don't do that. These kings in their day would just eliminate you and pick the next one behind you. But what did he say at the end of chapter 1? Give me success this day with this guy. I think, I think he did it on purpose. I think he let his... Now, and that's just an opinion, it's not fact. But it's my opinion is as good as yours, so it's okay. I think it was a plan. I think he went in looking sad on purpose. And the king challenged him, and he was afraid, but he prayed. He let his passion drive him to action. I'm not just passionate, I'm actually going to step out and do something about it. We so often miss that step. We get fired up, we get passionate, we get upset. God has wired us with a sense of justice. And yet, we don't move forward. Our passion is fleeting. We talk about it, we cry about it, we get angry, we put up a Facebook post, and we go get tacos somewhere. But he acted prayerfully, and he stepped into it. He stepped into the action. Look what he did. He prayed, and then he began to act strategically. You can write these down. I'm going to hit four things real quick. Why shouldn't I be? But then he began to act strategically. What do I need? I prayed, and then these are the things that I need. Chapter 2, look at verse 7. If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because, because the good hand of my God was on me. God, chapter 1, in, give me success with this man. Okay, Nehemiah. You got it. But that means you got to turn your passion into action. He's forged by the passion. He's shaped into the man that he is by the passion. But he's also forged by the action. He actually stepped in to the king's presence, and he was ready. Now, this is the same king that had ordered Jerusalem not to be rebuilt. It wasn't, in my mind, just this sudden thing that happened. He had planned it. He was strategic. When he asked, these are the things that I want. Do you see it? He was strategic. He was also decisive. Skip all the way down. When Nehemiah gets from the king the letters, the king gives him permission to go, and he goes. And the king gives him an escort, army officers and cavalry. And they go to Jerusalem. But look down in chapter 2, verse 20. He gets there and he walks around the city at night. He sees that the city is in horrible disrepair. And then he gathers the leaders and he says, we're going to rebuild the city. 
Um, look at verse 19. These are some of the enemies. So when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah and the Ammon, an Ammonite official and Gesham the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us. What is this thing you're doing? You're rebelling against the king. So I answered them and said, I've got permission from the king. Now let's know what he said. He answered and said, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you, you have no right, no portion, no right or memorial in Jerusalem. Absolutely decisive. He's strategic. What do you need, Jeremiah? Well, now that you mention it, I need this long list that I just happen to have prepared in my back pocket. I need these things. His passion turned into action, and he was ready when the moment happened. He was ready when the door was open. And then he also acted decisively. He goes. He gets on the horse. They go to Jerusalem. He surveys the damage. He tells them, we're going to rebuild the wall. And the enemy hears it, and they confront him. He doesn't back down. I'm not stepping back. I'm a cupbearer to the king. I spent my entire life wondering if the next sip would kill me. I'm not worried about you. We're going to rebuild, and you have no portion or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Decisive. He made his decisions and he went forward. He also acted consistently. Chapter 4. We're going to skip chapter 3. But in chapter 4, they've begun to rebuild the wall. In chapter 4, he finds out the enemy is going to come and attack the builders. Now, think about it. These guys are not military. He has a handful of soldiers with him. But the enemy can muster more troops than he can. But the guys building, these are farmers. These are businessmen. These are merchants. They, are, they, they don't have an army. This isn't the Roman army that also built stuff. This is a bunch of guys living near Jerusalem, and he gathers them together. Can you pick up bricks? Yes, good, then you qualify. And we're going to build the wall. So watch what he does. Chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant, at each, let each man with his servant spend the night in Jerusalem so that they may be on guard for us night by night and labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to water. He was absolutely consistent in everything they did. We're going to gather here, we're going to stay here, and we're going to work here, and I'm not going to change clothes until we're done. When I lay down to rest, I'll have my weapon with me and a guy standing there watching. When I get up and he rests, I'll have my weapon watching and his weapon will be laid next to him. They were always on task. Always on task. Now, let me say something about these ideas concerning us. We'll get to act. We're going to do one more, but... Are you always on task? Are you always consistently ready? In season, out of season, can you give an account of the faith that is within you? 
Are you praying for an open door to share the gospel? And are you ready to share the gospel when you get the open door? Are you knocking sometimes to see if anybody will open the door? Be decisive. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Take action. Are you being intentional with your wife and praying over her and leading her? Are you being intentional with your children and shaping them in the image of Christ? I hope you are not assuming that school or church will do that. School and church will come alongside. If you're at Silverdale Academy, school and church will come alongside. If you're at Central High School, they will not. You, as the head of the household, you as the man, you've got to be ready and you've got to make up your mind that I'm going to do it. You're not going to slack off. You're on mission. When do we rest, David? When you get to heaven. If you believe in the millennial reign of Christ, you can sleep the first hundred years. Nobody will care. Between now and then, be ready and go. Do it. Be on task. Be intentional. I went out to eat with my wife and my new boss and his wife years ago in a position I was in. And the guy had just come to town. We went out to eat at uh, a nice Italian restaurant because I heard that he liked Italian. And I said to him, and when the server came up, I said to her, not realizing that my boss was not going to be all that excited about it, I said, hey, before we eat, we're going to pray. How can I pray for you? And she turned around and walked off and did not come back for a very long time. And my boss was me. Hey, good morning. Um, I know that you were just watching uh, the clip of me teaching at Forged, and uh, we had some technical difficulties. And you probably are kind of wondering about that story. What happened? Did you ever get anything to eat uh, when the server walked away? Did you have to go somewhere, hit McDonald's on the way out of town? I just wanted to finish that story for you because it illustrates being intentional, being on mission. You see, we get, we get really, to be honest, lazy sometimes, and we, we start thinking about ourselves, we start thinking about a life of ease and comfort instead of getting up every day, talking to God when my feet hit the floor, and staying on mission all day long. Well, after a little while, that server at that Italian restaurant did come back. Someone else brought us drinks, and um, someone else took our order. But in a little while, she came back, and she had tears. And she looked down at our table, and she asked if we really meant what we said when we asked her, how can we pray for you? And my wife looked at her and said, of course. And she choked up, and she began to tell my wife, please pray for me. I expect to go to jail tomorrow. I'm out on probation. And then you kind of think, you're on probation and you're serving my food? I don't know if that's, do I, do I, do I want that? But you don't say anything. She said, I'm on probation. I go to court tomorrow. I'm confident the judge will put me in jail for a very long time. Please pray. So my wife took a piece of paper, wrote her phone number on it, 
handed it to the girl and assured her that we would pray. Didn't hear anything the next day. A couple of days later, my wife got a phone call, answered it, and it was the same lady. And she said, can you come pick me up from jail? Are you serious? I'm in jail and they're letting me go and I have to have a ride. And she said, of course I can pick you up. So my wife drove up, picked her up, and on the ride to take this lady to the place where she needed to be, this was her story. She said, I got to court and the judge sentenced me and he put me in jail just like I thought he would. But then when I got here to Silverdale, jail, not the church. When I got to Silverdale jail, I was here a couple of days and they called me up front and released me. They said that things had been changed and I was now released on probation, but I had to call someone to pick me up. They wouldn't let me leave on foot, but I didn't have my phone. And I went through my stuff when they gave me my clothing and the only phone number I had was yours on that piece of paper wadded up in my pocket. And so I called and I didn't know what to do. So my wife shared the gospel with this young lady, took her to a house that uh, she was staying in, asked her, please contact me. Let me know what's going on in your world. Now, the lady didn't give her life to Christ right then, but she was listening. We didn't hear anything, it, actually for several years. And then several years later, we got a note from a friend leading a Bible study and they said, do you know this name? And they called the girl by name. And we recognized it. it's a very unusual name. And she, BJ said, yes, we know her. Wrote her back. And lady said, well, she's in my Bible study. I'm running a halfway house doing Bible study with ladies that have been in trouble. And this lady asked, she said, do you know BJ Lawson? And the Bible study teacher said, well, yes, I do. She said, well, tell her. I gave my life to Christ, and I'm doing great. Chokes me up every time because my wife was on mission. My wife was on mission. She was on task. I'm not stopping. I'm not quitting for dinner. I'm not taking a supper break. I am looking for opportunities. I'm knocking on the door to see if anybody answers. One young lady answered said, I need help. Today, that lady's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and when we get to heaven, we're all going to be hanging out together. You would hang out with people that have been to jail? <laughs> of course. If you knew what I had done, you might be questioning whether you'd be listening to this video. Stay on mission. Stay on task. Eyes open weapon at hand, the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, ready to use it because you are confident in your ability to use the weapon that God has given you, the Word of God. Stay on task. Hey, love you guys. Have a great month. Lord bless you. And may the Lord give you opportunities to talk to someone about Christ. Have a good day. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the Connect Card button. 
In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.